Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. On commemorative occasions such as Anzac and Memorial Day, we inevitably reflect on the service of prior generations in the First World War as well as other conflicts. But while these servicemen and women fought bravely during the conflicts, how did the war fit in with their broader lives? It's a topic that historian Ian Hodges of the Australian Department of Veterans Affairs has been exploring, specifically with regard to World War I. That conflict saw Australia forge national identity distinct from the broader British Empire, and it also saw the creation of the Australian Imperial Force, the country's first military force equipped for overseas conflict. To show the effect of the First World War, he focused on one particular city, located about 300 miles inland from Sydney. It's somewhat off the beaten path, and has a name few outside southeastern Australia are probably familiar with. So Ian, is it pronounced Wagga Wagga? Wagga Wagga. It's pronounced Wagga Wagga. It means in the indigenous language of the Wiradjuri people, the place of many crows. And it's just at the beginning. We have the coastal plain, then this um, range called the Great Dividing Range, which by world standards is not a high mountain range at all. But then Wagga sort of sits on the river where it starts to... It's in this undulating country, which is the beginning of the Western Plains in New South Wales. So you focused on the soldiers who went to the First World War. What I looked at was the the generation of soldiers who went to the First World War and I followed them from their childhood through their schooling and into the army in most cases, through the war and then through their lives up into the Great Depression and towards the Second World War. The idea was that I wanted to not treat the war like most people do as a discrete episode in someone's life. I wanted it to be treated as part of the sort of continuum of people's lives as an episode rather than the sort of the be all and end all of their life. And my point that I was trying to make was while there were plenty of people who came home in a terrible state, um, mentally or physically wounded, who were unable to, I guess, find their way back into peacetime life, which is the sort of story you hear about World War One veterans generally. The point that I wanted to make was that a lot of them actually came back and led very successful, quite happy lives. And that's where I was going with it. So I've got both types of guys in my work. I've got the guys who came back and needed help and didn't settle and didn't do well. And then I've got guys who ran the town, guys who became mayor and teachers and senior public servants and businessmen, wealthy people. I imagine these would have been people born towards the end of the 19th century. Yeah, the oldest guy I look at was born in 1865, and he was the most senior soldier to come from Wagga. At the beginning of the war, he was the most senior soldier to come from Wagga, and a man who was a little younger than him ended up becoming Australia's own field marshal in later life. But most of the people I deal with, yeah, they were born, say, from about 1885 onwards, going to school in the 1890s, early 1900s. Usually, in most cases, they weren't fresh-faced boys, the boys who enlisted in Australia and including Wagga, most of them had sometimes decades and at least years of work behind them before they enlisted. And so I followed them through school, into their jobs and then into the military. Thinking about the colonisation of Australia, I imagine this far inland 
Wagga Wagga would have been a pretty rural area at the time. The settlement of Wagga began with a couple of sheep runs where there was a good ford for crossing the Murrumbidgee and a couple of settlers illegally set up sheep runs there because it was beyond what was called the limits of settlement in New South Wales where people were legally allowed to claim land and farm it. But anyway, so they started in 1832, illegally or not, um, white settlement increased, more and more Europeans came and in the 1840s it it became a sort of a village and it went to a town um, by the 1860s, it was a pretty thriving community of several, uh, several probably six, seven hundred people, maybe heading up towards a thousand. It was getting, you know, brick buildings. It had a courthouse, and like almost every Australian town, it had a lot of pubs. Had, you know, all sorts of different businesses, several schools. Eventually, bridges were built across the Murrumbidgee. They used to use punts, but they were too dangerous in floods. And so, yeah, bridges were built across the Murrumbidgee. It became a major crossroads in that part of New South Wales. And the town just, just built up from there. And so by the beginning of the war, there were about six, 7,000 people living in Wagga. So what kind of characters did you come across in your research? I don't know characters in the sense of there being larrikins or not, but the, the senior soldier I mentioned was a bloke called Alfred Bennett. And he's interesting because he, as a 20-year-old corporal in 1885, sailed with the New South Wales contingent to the Sudan. And though they got there too late to see any real action, he was one of the first, in this case, New South Welshmen, to go overseas on a military expedition in the name of the Queen. So it was in the name of Queen Victoria. He then went and served in the Boer War and ended that war as a major, was wounded twice, received the Distinguished Conduct Medal, several other awards... And he came home to Wagga after the Boer War and he spoke at a what was called a smoke social where the townspeople came to welcome him home because he was a, also a school teacher and a very well-known figure. And he gave a couple of really interesting speeches about how he had learned in South Africa that no soldier, Australian or wherever they were from, was a natural soldier, that they all needed training. And he said something along the lines of everyone's a new chum until they get the experience. And then when the First World War broke out, he was asked to join the AIF as a major, the rank he'd held at the end of the Boer War. By that time, he was a headmaster of a school in a place called Broken Hill, which is quite a long way from Wagga, but he was still considered Wagga's own, and he liked the town, and he went there, and he gave this talk, and instead of saying that he had found that every new soldier needs experience before they become good at it, he completely reversed himself and said Australians were the best soldiers you'd ever seen. They didn't need a lot of training and all the things that you would say could get men into uniform. And he'd specifically gone to Wagga to try and get men into the 3rd Battalion, which was the battalion he expected to command. In the end, the command was given to someone else. But as the war went on, he ended up commanding several battalions, including on Gallipoli, where he served almost, if not from the very first day. And he ended up commanding the 1st Battalion through Lone Pine. But he was in his 50s by then, and Gallipoli ruined him, sent him back home. And he did go back to Europe, and he did end up leading another battalion in action. He was more or less spent, and he was overtaken by a guy called Thomas Blamey as Wagga's senior soldier. And Blamey became um, chief of staff to the Australian Imperial Force, to um, General Monash. And... He became Wagga's senior soldier. They're they're kind of interesting guys because of the positions they had and the positions they attained through their lives. But to me, the more interesting guys, say a bloke like Cedric Ryan, who enlisted and went off to Egypt and wrote some really, I guess, unpleasant. He comes across as an unpleasant character. 
And he wrote some letters home to his family, like many Australians at the time, talking about the Egyptians, calling them and other things. He came home from the war early and told people that he'd been on Gallipoli, that he'd been wounded in the head. And the people who knew him believed him, and they said he came back and he wasn't quite right. And eventually they named his condition as shell shock. And the war ended and he was long back in Wagga and he was working for the post office. And he met this young girl called Nellie Howard, I think her name was. And they went out a few times. And then one night he killed her by the river, by the Murrumbidgee. Wow. He murdered her with a knife because she told him she was seeing someone else. And so he went back to the post office in the middle of the night where some of his colleagues still were. And he told them that he'd just been informed that his sister-in-law, whose brother, his brother, had been killed in the war, had been in a nasty accident. And then, as an afterthought, he added, oh, and I killed someone tonight, but I guess I'll just have to put up with that. And they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him because they knew he was a bit of a nutter and he was likely to say all sorts of things. And a bit later on, he pulled out a knife and told his friends, you know, have you ever, ever used one of these? You know, I've used them before, so I knew what it would be like. And he ended up calling the ambulance and got in the ambulance with the ambulance driver and took him down to the river. And he said, there's your patient. And the dead body of this girl was under a blanket under a tree. And he was arrested and he was insensible to his fate. He didn't mind the fact that they sentenced him to death. And throughout the trial, he used his having been on Gallipoli to, um, I guess, excuse his actions. And he told the judge what he told his friends that I knew what it was like to stab someone. I'd done it on the other side. The Australians called it the other side when they spoke of the war. The soldiers at least did. And he said, I, I was, um, you know, I'd done it on the other side. I knew the feel and the sound and I knew what it was like. But it turned out that he'd never been on Gallipoli and he'd never been in action. He'd never got any further to the front than Egypt. So he was just a fraud. So he was making all that stuff up, but still blaming Gallipoli for what he'd done. And he ended up having his death sentence commuted he ended up leaving Wagga, moving to Victoria after he left prison and marrying another woman who he never told about the fact that he'd been in prison or that he'd murdered someone. And she too believed for the rest of her life that he'd been on Gallipoli. And so you got this story of this really messed up guy who ends up killing a young girl and uh, yeah, blaming Gallipoli on it when he was never there. And you get a few cases like that where people sometimes perhaps, how can I put it, not... I'll use the word not to excuse killing someone, but to give a reason why they were able to assault them without killing them. Just for example, a guy called Buff Williams, who got into a fight at a pub and smashed someone over the head with a fence paling, put him in hospital. And he said to the magistrate, you know, I was used to killing them on the other side, so I knew how much force to use not to kill the guy. And he got off because the other guy provoked him and he was never in trouble again. But it gives you an idea of how the war was used sometimes to justify murder and sometimes as an excuse for explaining why you were able to stop short of committing it. So he was sentenced to death, but he didn't actually face the death penalty? Yeah, his, his death sentence was commuted, although at the time he seemed quite happy to, um, to accept his sentence. The reporters said, you know, he accepted that just as if they'd offered him a cup of tea or something. He sounds like a complete psychopath. Basically, yeah, and there's some evidence that, if not a psycho, he was an unpleasant character before the war if not a psycho, um, and then became one without ever having been to the front, which kind of goes against that idea that he was so damaged by his service that he came back this other person. He never went near the front and he came back the person he always was, but he took it further. 
and he killed this young girl. Do we know how he avoided frontline action? Yeah, look, I think it was due to his health. I, I think he had a, a health problem that prevented them sending him to the front, so he, he, he never went, and he was sent back home. He only spent a couple of months in Egypt at the very most, and there were many, many cases like that. Not all of them came home to kill someone, but the, the recruiters in Australia would accept people into the AIF, and as soon as they got to Europe, the medical officers sent them straight home again because they were just not fit for frontline service particularly as the war went on and they were desperate to get people. Yeah, that's a long journey just to find out you're not fit for service. Yeah, so you've got the pressure of the politicians in Australia wanting more and more people to enlist and pressuring recruiting officers to get them in. And then you've got the pressure when they get to Europe of the medical officers saying no. And thousands and thousands of of soldiers had that experience of getting to England in most cases and then just turning around and coming home again. I know you found some amusing or at least peculiar stories as well. One of the stories that interests me most is about the mayor, Edward Collins, and what happened on Armistice Day in Wagga. Now, Collins had been a staunch supporter of recruiting and of the war effort throughout, and he was the mayor of Wagga at various times. So he had a, a, a good platform, and he made a big effort to get people into the AIF. On the day the war ended, the, the War Service Committee had been having a dispute about which of the town's two bands should lead the parade celebrating the end of the war. There was the Wagga Brass Band and the okay, the Town Band, I think it was called. And the Brass Band had been the one that was associated with the AIF throughout the war. It had been the band that had played at recruiting rallies. There was a group called the Kangaroos, a recruitment march that left Wagga about 80 strong and arrived in Sydney about 240 strong. It had played them out of Wagga. It had played them into Sydney. It had played at the funerals of soldiers who died after they returned home. And it was widely associated with the Australian Imperial Force in Wagga. Now, for some reason, rather than letting them lead the band, the mayor called for a ballot. And it came out 50-50. And he had the deciding vote and he gave it to the other band which really annoyed a lot of people. And he tried to fix the situation, but before he could meet with the band master, the war ended and the news came to Wagga. So the war ended and people poured into the streets and this war service committee is still having their meeting and trying to determine how they will influence event, which by then were way beyond anyone's capacity to influence. And so they all went outside and the two bands were there. And when they struck up, people sort of split up. Some went with one band, some went with the other. And they decided they would hold the formal parade the next day with the the wrong band leading the parade. And so the wrong band began the next morning. They struck up and started walking across a bridge heading south, or rather heading north, sorry. So they cross this bridge, they're heading north, and with them is the mayor and a group of returned soldiers and some other important local people And they get across this bridge and they realise that no one's following them. There's no one around. There's no band. There's no crowd. There's no people. So the band that's with him strikes up the national anthem. He jumps in a cab, goes back across the bridge to find that the crowd have gone with the brass band and they're heading south towards the railway station. So he waits outside the town hall and demands that you can imagine it. He puts his hand up like, you know, like in a cartoon for them to stop. And they basically march over him. And so the the festivities are cancelled and Edward Collins, you can imagine, is super pissed off because he's waited, you know, four years, like a lot of people have waited four years this day and everything he was going to say, everything he had prepared went out the window because there was no audience for him because they'd all gone off with the other band. 
and it turned the day into a fiasco. Wagga didn't get the parade that they were hoping for. They didn't get the sort of unity that, that they were hoping for. And so it ended in acrimony, and it left Collins... I, I kind of trace it to that incident, but there may be more going on. It left him a a very strong anti-returned soldier guy in Wagga, and he stood in the way of them getting the memorials they wanted for more than a decade, and he made life very difficult for the returned men in terms of Wagga's commemorative activities. And so he went from being a big supporter of the AIF to this disappointment to really apparently hating returned soldiers and doing everything he could to thwart them for the rest of his sort of period of influence in Wagga. Basically, he punished the troops because he picked the wrong band. He should have known. That's my belief. He should have known which band was the band people wanted. And he seems to have almost willfully ignored that. And then as he tried to fix the situation, it was too late. So, yeah, there was chaos. Where there should have been unity, there was chaos. And it seems that Wagga did maintain a pretty strong degree of public unity throughout the war, even though there were the divisive issues of conscription and recruitment. But overall, the town remained quite united. And it seems to me that the moment the war ended, all the tensions that people had kept under wraps came to the surface and turned this day into a fiasco. There's another guy, okay, who who did come back seriously mentally ill. And when he tried to get assessed by the repatriation department, he was sent to a mental hospital in Sydney called Callum Park. And when he got there, he was stripped naked and beaten by the other inmates. That's awful. So he left and returned home and essentially spent the rest of his life on his sister's couch in Sydney. He would not go and try and get a pension because he was too scared to approach the repatriation system after what had happened. Traumatised. Before he left Europe, after he'd cracked up, he'd been in the battles around Passchendaele in 1917. And he cracked up and he, he would say things like he thought God was talking to him and telling him that he was the last man on earth, that he was a wicked man and that everyone else had gone to heaven, but he'd go to hell. And he'd have all these horrendous visions and he started masturbating publicly, even in the day room while waiting, you know, in front of other people to see a doctor. Eventually the seeing God and the being told he was a wicked man and the devil was going to get him faded, but he never was fit for anything else for the rest of his life. So there are... There are people like that. There are people like William Worth who was shot in the neck on Gallipoli and paralysed. And the sort of story you would expect of a guy like that is he came home and he led a pretty miserable life as a disabled man. But he was paralysed from the neck down, uh, wounded on the 19th of May during a Turkish attack when a lot of Australians had such good shooting that they actually got up on the parapet to fire at the Turks who were charging in mass waves. And so a lot of the Australians who were wounded or killed that day were shot in the head and neck because their heads were above the parapet. And he was one of those. And the wound that paralysed him, he improved over time, so he did regain the use of parts of his body. But instead of coming home, and as you might expect, you know, accepting his fate, he, he did everything he could to get better and to get jobs and to try and make something of his life. So you got people like that, another bloke who lost an arm and ended up running a fruit barrow at Circular Quay in Sydney for most of his life. You know, all sorts of different stories of men coming home to different circumstances. The guy who came home, you know, to become one of... He didn't come from Wagga, but he, he moved there when the war ended. And he became one of Wagga's leading citizens, became mayor. He was on all sorts of committees. He was on returned soldiers' committees. And so, yeah, you've got all these stories of, uh, I guess, the different kinds of fates of people who returned from the war. And in that sense, the town's a real microcosm of 
Australia and the sort of stories you'd find all over the country. I know in Australia they had these so-called PALS battalions where groups of friends, work colleagues, neighbours would all sign up together and be in the same brigade. Did you see any of that kind of activity in Wagga Wagga? It's not an exactly analogous situation, but the AIF was recruited by region. And so you would get battalions that were formed from a particular part of the country. But and you certainly did get groups of friends enlisting and all of that, but not to the same degree that you, you, you understand the PALS battalions to have been. But the, the AIF was certainly a regionally recruited force. And so, yeah, you get battalions from a particular part of Victoria or Melbourne. And in Wagga's case, a lot of men ended up in the 3rd Battalion because that Alfred Bennett, um, Major Bennett, who I was talking about, recruited Wagga men into that battalion. And it was basically a New South Wales formation. And so, yeah, there were definitely different parts of the country where a lot of people ended up in the same formations, but not as closely as the PALS battalions did. So it's a little different to that. In terms of their ages, would many of these guys you followed have still been young enough to have served during World War Two? One example is Thomas Blamey, the man I mentioned who became chief of staff to General Monash and the Australian Imperial Force. He went on to become one of Australia's leading generals in the Second World War and after that, became field marshal. So he's an obvious example. But yeah, there are others. I'd have to find them. But a lot of men also re-enlisted but never left Australia. So they served in kind of the equivalent of the Home Guard or in Home Defence, that sort of thing. So they didn't go overseas. A lot of them by then were getting probably too old for the AIF. But there's always cases from all over Australia of people who served in the First World War and went to the Second World War as well. Right. We tend to think of people who had shell shock or PTSD, lost limbs, went blind, all these terrible things that happened in World War One that just devastated people's lives. But basically there were some who came out of it and had a positive experience. Well, that's the thing, you know, people tend not to want to hear it, but there were people who enjoyed war. There were people who liked it, enjoyed the camaraderie, the excitement, you know, the... They're getting away from the everyday, I guess you could say, from the humdrum. And there's always people like that, and perhaps they're the people who were driven to enlist again, but it's also just out of duty. Australia was threatened in the Second World War, and a lot of people enlisted to defend the country, and people who'd been to war felt they had experience that perhaps they could offer. So there was, there was that situation as well. But yeah, you always get the nutters who just loved it. Just if, I don't know if you've ever read it, but there's a memoir by a guy called George Mitchell called Backs Against the Wall or Backs to the Wall. He was an Australian soldier, not from Wagga, but it's very clear that he quite enjoyed the war. He thought it was a pretty good thing. Have a look at Ernst Junger, read Storm of Steel. It's hard to avoid the fact that, or the impression that he liked it as well. So I've read about 2,000 men from Wagga served in World War One. But the population was in the thousands as opposed to tens of thousands. I mean, that's a huge percentage of the population that were involved in the war. It is. And when we talk about Wagga, you have to understand that we're talking about the hinterland as well. And in the era before mass mechanisation, there were large numbers of people working on farms, labourers, itinerants. And so it's a larger population than than just the town. You know, you you could live in the town and never be a farmer, you could be a clerk, you could work in a bank, you could work in a shop, you know, so they talk about the Bushmen in the Australian Imperial Force, but a lot of men from the country worked as they may have worked in the city and lived as they may have lived in a city. They weren't 
They were from a rural area, but they weren't bushmen by any stretch of the imagination. And I guess if you happened to be in the Wagga district when the war started or when you chose to enlist, then you counted as a Wagga man, even if you have no real connection with the town. And a good way to explain that is to go to the Memorial Arch at the Victory Memorial Gardens and look at the names on it. And a lot of them, you can't figure out what their connection to Wagga is because it's, it's just not clear at all. And they certainly don't appear in other roles and, um, and certainly not in my research, a lot of them. As people who came from there. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. If you've enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to check out the back catalogue for the two episodes I did on Gallipoli, also featuring Ian Hodges, as well as Brad Minera. Next week, we have the strange story of Saddam Hussein and the Polish exiles of Bishop Stortford. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.